welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Jung. So welcome to episode one of our podcast, Sleep Talk. I'm David Cunnington and I'm here with Dr. Moira Jung and we're going to be talking about sleep. So hopefully over the course of this podcast, you'll be able to understand a little bit more about sleep and we hope to really talk about lots of different topics around sleep across this series. So Moira, what are some of the things you hope to be able to get out of doing this podcast series? Well, one of the main things that interests me is being able to speak to such a broad audience and we know that this is available to to almost anyone really all, all around the world. And when we are talking with our patients or we're talking at a conference, it's such a limited audience. And this stuff, I think, because I love sleep, I love talking about sleep, I think it's such an interesting topic and it's such an important thing to be able to uh, disseminate this information so broadly. So that's what the main underlying reason why I'm so interested in partaking in this with you and it's such an honour to co-host with you. I just think it's great that um, we get out of our, our offices and get out of our conference rooms and the, the rest of the world can hear about the stuff that we talk about on a daily basis. Yeah, I agree. And I also find that I struggle a bit because, you know, we'll write articles in medical journals or we'll present at conferences, but often that's not accessible to people. So doing something that's accessible where, you know, we can just talk openly and, you know, mm. shoot the breeze about stuff about sleep and people can get a feel of about how we think about things and how we approach things, you know, I think is great. And there's a lot of, one of the motivators for me is there's a lot of poor quality information about sleep out there. Absolutely. And, Mm. you know, too often I'm seeing people in my practice who if only they could access better quality information may well not have gotten into the state that they're in. Yeah. So really want to be able to provide a good source of information. But it's really hard to know, isn't it? It's hard to discern what's good information and what's not. Yeah. So hopefully we can guarantee that this good information, that we, we're both health professionals, we're trained in sleep, we, we've worked a long time in the sleep disorders field. And I think people listening may be those, those people who are healthcare practitioners interested in sleep. Or, I mean, as we know, though, even if you don't work in the sleep disorders field, every patient you see most of, are likely or at some point in life to have some kind of disturbance to their sleep. Um, GPs, for instance, may not they're not specialising in sleep, but they would they see the majority of the people um, with sleeping problems, especially at the coal face. Um, pharmacists as well, they're people that we've um, you know, there's recent work at the Woolcock Institute that are really targeting pharmacists to have a much more um, you know broad and up to date knowledge about insomnia, for instance, to be able to help people at that at that at the actually literally at the counter. Yeah. Um, but I think it's fair to say what I'd like to say too at the start of this podcast is that even though um, it's good information and we're health professionals, it's not to be, it's not in lieu of people going to seek their own medical or psychological opinion about their sleep disorder. If they are listening to this, it's hard to know um, where to get information and this information will be good for people, but it's just really, it's us steering them in the right direction of where to, where to go, what are the, what are the um, upcoming conferences to for whether you're a patient or a, or a health practitioner. Yeah, I, I agree. And definitely not trying to provide a treatment by doing this podcast series. That's right. And really important, just trying to provide people some background information because the more people understand about sleep and often what's out there in the community is really myths and societal-based mm. beliefs rather mm. than our modern science and science and scientific mm. understanding of sleep. So if we can give people information, that can be helpful, but absolutely not a replacement for working with their health professionals and seeking help mm. if people are really struggling with their sleep. Yeah, 
So we probably should introduce ourselves more. We've gone a few minutes down the track and haven't actually said who we are, except, you know, Maura Younger and David Cunnington. Um, perhaps I should just say a little bit about my background. Um, I'm a psychologist. I'm a health psychologist. Uh, I won't go into exactly what a health psychologist is, but I work in the same way as a clinical psych in terms of being at the coal face and seeing patients in a clinical setting, but very much emph emphasis on the reciprocal relationship between people's physical well-being and their mental well-being. Um, and sleep disorders fits really nicely into that. I'm also, as you know, work in a um, general setting as well. I have lots of other health psychology patients, people with other, you know, with cancer, for instance, um, diabetes, interested in a lot of range of adjustment to illness issues, grief and loss. Uh, and but the sleep disorders, it's just I just just love it. I've worked in it for a long time. Um, it's a lot of variety within it, and. And you do you do other stuff too, so don't be modest. What about your practice in Yarraville? What just tell us a bit about that? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I've set up. Um, my husband and I set that practice up in the like, end of nineteen ninety seven. So we've been there for a long time, nearly twenty years now. And it's a multidisciplinary practice. We have lots of psychologists there, and we have um, alternative health practitioners. Well, not really called alternative anymore. Back then they were, um, you know, chiropractors, acupuncturists, massage therapists, naturopaths, osteo osteopath etc and it's we yeah very proud of that and really um we work really well together i think it's a great thing for the community uh it's for Yarraville of course but people from all across uh, melbourne come to come to see us in Yarraville. um what else do i do i do some teaching at monash as well i've been involved in some projects there and some supervision until recently we're um, the last couple of years coordinating some units out there so that, that's been a fantastic adjunct to my clinical work. I think with clinical work, you find, I find at least I get really tired um, if I work all day every day in a, in a room with someone sort of talking about their issues and it's a real honour to do so and I love it but it gets really tiring. So it's nice to break up the week with some extra stuff like some teaching. I'm running workshops. I just, as you know, last week uh, went to Brisbane and Sydney and some other workshops coming up under the heading of the APS, which is the Australian Psychological Society. Um, doing some all-day workshops with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Giselle Withers. We're running some workshops on how to treat insomnia with CBT mm -hmm. and mindfulness. And I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk about what those things are throughout yeah. the podcast, if not this one, coming up ones. Yeah. Thanks, Moy. So in terms of my background, so I'm a sleep physician and work now at Melbourne Sleep Disorders Centre where um, I see patients for most of the week. Um, but like you, I try to keep that balance between working with clients or working with patients, but allowing time for research and teaching and education. So about half my week is working face-to-face, -face, seeing people with sleep problems, and the other half of the week, yeah, doing work on research. As you know, and I've set up a website that's hosting this podcast series, so sleephub, sleephub.com.au, and that's been a lot of work but a real passion for trying to get out good quality information about sleep that's accessible for people in a, in a range of different forms. Mm. So, Moira, how did you get interested in sleep to start with? Um, well, I was a nurse originally and I was working at the Alfred Hospital, so this is going way back now. Um, and while I, I was a nurse and I really, really enjoyed that and Decided, though, what I loved most was the psychological aspects of health. Hence, no surprise, I'm a health psychologist now. And while I was doing that, I there was a part-time job. Well, I, I decided to study psychology and there was a part-time job at the Alfred Hospital back then in about 1993-94 and looking for someone to work at night as a sleep technologist, as a sleep scientist putting electrodes on people's head learning about sleep. And I, I thought, that sounds great. It was the first time. It was one of the few sleep disorder centres. I think it was probably the second or third that had been 
um, opened in Victoria at the time. And I was just got a great interest in that. Had a, so didn't intend to work in the sleep field. I, my interest in becoming a psychologist wasn't for that reason. I didn't know about that, that sleep was even a specialty. Yeah. And just really just enjoyed that, got really interested in it. Also realised that there was such a role for psychology and I just from that moment onwards just worked towards it, did my you know honours year, did a project at the sleep centre yep. um, and then I did a, a doctorate in psychology. Um, and then after that, as you know, have been just working in the sleep field ever since but alongside other issues, you know, other I don't want to only know about sleep. In fact, might be a good time to talk about the term sleep psychologist, mm-hmm. which has become part of the we took we say it all the time. I noticed, yep. you know, people introduce me as a sleep psychologist, but it doesn't. It's not really a real term. Like it's not an yep. existing registration or a title. It's just I'm a health psychologist, and other psychologists might work in the uh, clinical or their counselling or they're, they're some kind of psychologist or a general psychologist without a without a specialty, but they might be just still working in the sleep field. So anyway, so that's another, that's a little, an aside. Yeah. But that's how I became interested in, in working in the sleep disorders field and, and feel passionate. My my pathway was that I sort of had to not self-teach, but but I had to really make my own way. There wasn't really the pathways or the funding, you know. I've been trying yeah. to work in sort of in institutions for a long time and, and then back then, like 20 years ago, there wasn't the money. People would say, look, we'd love to have you working with us, but there's no money. But these days the funding model's changing. I'm very passionate about encouraging new psychologists to to train under us or to for me to provide supervision uh, and guidance and to and to really grow the field. Yeah, and for me, it was when I had an opportunity to do some um, post fellowship work at Harvard. So I was heading over there as a respiratory physician mm-hmm. to do some research in some of the cardiovascular um, problems that can occur with sleep apnea. And just fortuitously at the time, they were doing a lot of research in how the brain works in sleep and a very, very large research group. And that really introduced me to the breadth of sleep, mm. you know, the psychological aspects, the psychiatric aspects, the neurological aspects, the body clock, mm. society, the lifestyle. Area, isn't it? Really, yeah, and you know, really caught the bug. Mm. And that was 15 years ago and since then we've really been excited about sleep, love working yeah. in this area. Yeah. And as a clinician who works with people day to day, it's one of the areas in medicine where you can really make a big difference to how people feel. So it can be very oh, rewarding. Especially as a psychologist. I mean, you know yourself, I mean, people listening to this, everyone really understands if you don't sleep well, your whole world view is quite different. Like if, and especially, and we all know what it feels like from time to time, but when it's all the time, like chronic day after day, week after week, year after year of poor quality sleep, it certainly really changes people's perspective and their energy and their confidence and, and just their, their general well-being. Yeah. And I notice, it's, and you would have known this too, like back in when you were first interested in sleep, people thought it was a little bit of a soft specialty in a way. Like the people would actually literally laugh their head off, like hold their bellies and that you're going to a sleep conference. Oh, how funny. What do you all do? Do you all sleep in the back row? What are you doing in a sleep conference? Yeah. I said, well, you know, well, I didn't realise it was that funny because yeah. it wasn't funny. It's a serious, very, very serious issue. Yeah. And I think over the time it's less, I don't get that anymore. Like you wouldn't find that anymore. But certainly 20 years ago people thought it was really funny that, yeah. that you studied sleep or you, you worked with people with that they were identifying that sleep was a problem for them. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's certainly a specialty that's maturing, you know, particularly yeah. um, in Western health hasn't actually done sleep well 
up until you know the last 15 or 20 years yeah. um, but now we understand the science a lot better and providing sort of more services and you know you and I working hard at training the next generation of people to um, practice in this yeah. area. Well, and there's so much we don't know still, though. Let's face it, really, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, we do understand the science, but there's, a, I think, there's a lot emerging. Like, hopefully, in ten years' time, we know a lot more. Yeah. So, hopefully, you understand a bit better, more about us, having heard that introduction, and we look forward to talking about sleep and working with you and helping you understand more about sleep as we work through this podcast series. This is a section where we talk about what's been in the news and what's been topical in sleep this month. I think it's in this part of the podcast, um, it's good for us to both share the general things that have been um, topical. So what have been, what are things you've noticed in the last month or so recently, like particularly we had our ASA conference. Yeah, so some of the highlights for me from our recent Sleep Conference, which mm. was the annual scientific meeting of the Australasian Sleep Association yeah. held in Melbourne last month. So for me, there's a couple of different highlights, but one of the areas was uh, really mindfulness. You know, as you know, you know, you and I are both big fans of mindfulness mm. and um, looking at how that can be used for a range of different sleep problems. But there were papers on mindfulness for its use in restless leg syndrome, mm. um, papers on mindfulness and its use in insomnia. Yeah. Um, and... You know, we've also got some hands-on experience using it for other sleep conditions like parasomnias. Mm. So it was really nice to see that being part of the meeting and people sort of understanding that, whereas yeah. I remember when the conference was last in Melbourne, I think it was around six or seven years ago. Yeah, we really 2008, just, I think. Yeah, we were really mm. just talking about that as a concept. Yeah. But to see that sort of yeah. come full circle yeah. and now presenting research showing it works and actually yes. having it part of our our normal clinical practice, yeah. for me that was a really nice demonstration of how we've been able to move forward, mm. you know, look at it, something we think that's going to work, evaluate yeah. it using evidence-based research, prove that it works, mm. implement it and roll it out as a clinical practice. Yeah, so, oh, know, it's very I, exciting. Yeah, it's really so good. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. What about yeah. for you, Moira? What were um, some of the things you oh, enjoyed? Well, the, I really I loved a lot of things um, and one, one of the highlights for me was the um, symposium we had on, nar- on narcolepsy. In fact, you and I were both involved in that, um, but over and above our involvement, I actually was 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 really my highlight because it was just so important to um, introduce the to the general like the the audience. It's very unusual in a scientific meeting to have the perspective of a, of a patient, um, a little bit unorthodox to say the least. But it was really useful. I think it was really it was really. A moving and it was really powerful. One of our patients here with narcolepsy was able to very generously give her time and her expertise in living, sharing her experience of living with narcolepsy. Um, and it was you know, on a panel and we talked about that. And I think a lot of people have um, given feedback either via email um, or just you know, chatting to me saying that for them, for them it was a highlight as well. And the, we, it was because with narcolepsy, if people who don't know what narcolepsy is, you know, it's a... Um, a chronic neurological condition where people are excessively sleepy and have, and so the focus really has been on that sleepiness. But as we know, the actual psychological and social aspects of having such a terrible debilitating disorder that doesn't have any cure and it's likely to impact on them in many, many ways for the rest of their life. Having said that, people with narcolepsy can have a really good quality of life and that was but not without its challenges. And so it was really nice to actually focus on the psychological and the social aspects, and that hasn't happened very often at 
this is so, you know the scientific meeting, and I just I just thought that was great. It was a real turning point for me, and not that I was just involved in it. You know, it was it was just a really um, important thing. Yeah, I agree, and mm. I agree with that. It was really nice to bring the patient experience mm. to into the medical conferences, which are so often um, missing. Mm. And yeah, because it was well received, you know, it, we are planning or hoping to reconvene that panel for our next episode of the podcast series. Yes. Yeah, so look yeah. out for, you know, more discussion, including, you know, with one of someone who's actually got narcolepsy about how that impacts on them mm. as part of this series. Yeah, because part of, and that's what I was saying before about this, why I'm interested in this podcast, is because that was such a powerful thing. It was really important. But there was probably, say, I don't know, 100 or 200 people or whatever it was in the room, whereas that we all need to know about that, not just the people that were present then. Um, everyone who couldn't get to that conference or who wouldn't even dream of going to an actual sleep-specific conference, we can bring it to the masses, like, you know, have repeat um, that discussion in a way, the things we were talking about, and, and bring it to this podcast. So stay tuned. So the theme of this episode of our podcast series is talking about insomnia. So we're going to talk about what insomnia actually is and talk a little bit about how that makes people think and how it impacts on people. So, so Moira, what is insomnia? Well, insomnia is many many things. Um, in terms of the in terms of the specific scientific diagnostic criteria, it's difficulty either initiating sleep or maintaining sleep, or waking up too early, called early morning awakenings, or non restorative sleep. So, some people could actually sleep reasonably. They've got the hours of sleep, but their sleep is that so poor that they feel like they haven't slept at all. So in addition to that, it has to be at least three or more times per week and it has to be for three months before it's diagnosable as insomnia. Really important other parts of that is that the person suffering with this has really quite, um, they're impaired, they have impacts on their social and or occupational or physical emotional functioning. So the and the other part of it, is that it's in the context of adequate opportunity for sleep. So there's a little bit of jargon there, but the essence is that it's people are having a lot of difficulty getting to sleep or staying asleep or waking too early and they're really distressed by it and it's been going on for some time and they as try as they might, like they're providing opportunity. So it's not just the, you know, the, uh, the person who's just curtailing their sleep because it's due to their work demands and they're, and they're sleeping you know, short. It's not a short sleeper. It's it's all those other things. It's quite a complex array of things. Yeah. So the marked thing for me, especially my bias as a psychologist, is the, is the distress around it. So there's a lot of people who are short sleepers or, or just say, deciding not to prioritise sleep. Um, and it's arguable whether it's insomnia if it doesn't have that marked impairment and that distress yeah. and that it's been going on for some time. So all of us, I mean, that brings us into... I mean, I ask you, I mean, maybe what's what's your impression of, you know, do you, do you have a similar diagnosis, a similar sort of diagnostic criteria? Yeah, absolutely. And one way of conceptualising it is thinking of the more that more medical sleep disorder type of insomnia that you've mm. described that meets that DSM-5 criteria mm. as being chronic insomnia. Mm. And there's another form of insomnia called acute insomnia, which is mm. stress happens, we don't sleep well for a day or two, the stress passes and our sleep settles back down. Yeah. So people who are getting that transient changes in sleep with life circumstances, we don't think that's not chronic insomnia and it's not the sort of insomnia where people are seeking help from health professionals generally. Yeah. Um, so when we use the term insomnia, we're more talking about the chronic insomnia as you've yeah. outlined. Yes. 
And that's where the treatments really vary. And we'll talk about treatments in a, in a future episode, but the treatments for acute insomnia is really waiting for the stress to pass mm. or in, if people are really distressed, short-term use of medications. Mm. Where the treatment for chronic insomnia, as you've described, is much more about changing thinking and behaviour around sleep and just using medications in the short term or telling someone wait for the stress to pass, that ain't going to fix it mm. because it's a completely different beast or a completely different thing yeah. than that couple of days of just not sleeping yeah. well. And the thing that with chronic insomnia, the thing that started it initially, there's usually there's always some kind of trigger um, and in psychology and probably in medicine too, we always talk about sort of the predisposing factors, precipitating factors and perpetuating factors. So you're looking at the precipitating what happened, what was the trigger, what was the stress, and they're predisposing, like, you know, what's, what's this person, uh, are they a warrior anyway? And we know that with insomnia there's a lot of personality traits. There's people who generally, uh, they're self-confessed warriors. They're usually sort of in, prone to internalisation, maybe mm-hmm. just not, not ranting and raving too much but stewing on things. Yeah. And they're also prone to perfectionistic qualities, really highly driven and and perfectionist. So generally speaking, they're the sort of a, some of the predisposing. But what happens as a site, what I'm interested in are the perpetuating factors. Like mm-hmm. what's what's kept this going when those other things might have stopped. Often you might see someone, you've seen this yourself, I might see someone who says they've happened, sort of started with the birth of their first baby and I look at the woman in front of me, I think, hmm, she looks at least 60-something. And you've, sure enough, you think, well, this has been going a long time. Their first, her first baby's now, you know, 30. But it's been going on and on and on, whereas the, the baby's grown up, all the stresses of that have changed. But the, the the worry about sleep and and the things that were going into that, the anxiety around the nighttime coming and the, and the stress in the daytime has perpetuated this problem yeah. way beyond where it might have other been, otherwise been. Yeah. And really when I'm thinking about insomnia too, you know, I think people should generally be seeking help from their health professionals a bit earlier than what they tend to. Yeah. You know, one of the things <clears> I um, struggle with a bit is that people come to see me in my practice, I wish I'd had the opportunity to see them a bit earlier on. Yeah, absolutely. Because it wouldn't have been as hard a work to get them back yeah. to sleeping well. But it's hard, isn't it? I think Absolutely. people do report, I mean, it's, and, it's, and it's very hard for GPs as well. Um, yeah. But what happens is that sometimes it's people, maybe they're not necessarily telling the GP how distressed they really are. Mm-hmm. Um, but also there's been reports of people saying, you know, I, have, I did tell someone I was distressed but it was it was um, minimised or it wasn't, it was, I didn't get the referral I was wanting at the time. So it's really, it is really important for people to, and I think that's changing, there's a lot of education. People do know in the general community, in general health practitioners, how important sleep is and if someone is distressed by it, that's going to be likely the, the perpetuating factor. Mm-hmm. So to seek help, people should seek help as early as possible, yeah. and to recognise that the, the the distress around it is is key. Yeah, that that's what we're going generally. That's what we're going to be targeting, yeah. and to make people less ritualised, less concerned about their sleep. And that's what we notice with when we get into this. We'll get into this later. But the treatments around insomnia and the suggestions that people with good, good well-meaning, well-intentioned, is ramping up their their worry with the sleep hygiene techniques that have been put onto the person, say, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. And the person becomes very concerned and ritualised and fearful and to um, wanting to adhere to rules, et cetera, whereas we want to steer them away from that. Yeah, I agree. And the, 
you're right on point there because I wrote a blog post about that recently on Sleep Hub, mm. um, which was actually I posted on Huffington Post as well. Um, and you can access that if you're interested on sleephub.com.au forward slash sleep hyphen rules forward slash. And really I was trying to talk about exactly that, that people put in place some rules initially that they're not sleeping well and think that goes well, mm. but they still not sleeping well and they put in place more rules yeah. and then not sleeping yeah. well put in place more rules and it just yeah. gets too and it, constrained. And it makes sense time. to do that because in most other parts of our life, like you think about our work or our fitness or our generally the harder you work at it or the more you put in, the better results you get. So it's kind of a cruel irony really, isn't it, that, yeah. that with sleep, the, especially these self-driven perfectionistic um, people who are who are like us, like, <laughs> takes one to know one. Yeah, <laughs> that they want to fix it, and they yeah. and they're usually you know very capable. Yeah. And so the fixing is the you know the searching for the cure, searching for the fix. Yeah. So we have to take a paradoxical approach, and it's it's counterintuitive. Yeah, to, I, to, I agree. To not emphasise sleep too much and not try this and try that. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things or one of the problems I have in clinical practice is working out when I should be focusing more on treating depression and anxiety, for example, first, rather than just um, focusing on sleep. Um, so to help clarify this, I talked to Dr. Curtis Gray from Brisbane. Kurt's a psychiatrist in private practice and also runs the Towards Better Sleep program, a group-based CBT treatment for insomnia. Um, and information on that's available at towardsbettersleep.com.au. So thanks, Kurt, for talking with us about sleep and insomnia. So I wanted to ask you in your role as a psychiatrist, what, what are you thinking when you see someone who's coming to you and they've got problems with sleep? Uh, well, often there's a sort of a comorbidity that's going on. As you can appreciate, I see a sort of a, um, a biased sample of uh, people referred particularly um, from other uh, specialists, sometimes from sleep specialists. Occasionally I see somebody who's sort of just in inverted commas, a sort of a simple, again in inverted commas, insomnia case, but often it's in the mix of the usual sorts of high prevalence conditions that are out there in the community. So it's depression, anxiety, some uh, misuse of substances, um, you know, mixed up with real life, real world stress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm trying to sort of tease out the uh, those, if you like, domains um, of of problems. Yeah. Um, bearing in mind they all overlap and seeing where the sleep complaint sits, it's usually insomnia that I'm seeing. Yeah. And, and I struggled with that a bit in clinical practice of trying to work out is insomnia or lifestyle stress the major thing, and do I focus on that? Or is it more insomnia and there's some anxiety tied up in insomnia and do I focus on that? Mm. So how do you approach that? Mm. Right, well, I suppose one thing I'm not, I'm, I'm increasingly not not doing yeah. is um, looking at it as an either-or sort of phenomenon. So, so it's all in the mix for me. I, I see it all in there together and, you know, I'm seeing a lot of sort of bi-directional and multi-directional relationships between all that sort of stuff I think Um, and you know very often the for example in a case where there's a lot of stress um, but also symptomatology of a diagnosable condition 
I'll be sort of doing the work in both ends of the street, if you like. So coming at it from both directions, looking at, okay, let's see how we can improve the, if you like, complaint or the condition, that which is diagnosed. But also let's see what might be able to be done about those other lifestyle factors and the stresses. And what would be your threshold for then looking at medication, for example, for either mood disturbance or anxiety? That's a tricky one because the threshold um, is in many respects influenced by patient preference. Uh-huh. You know, some people will, um, will just not want a bar of a medication and, um, and that sort of um, sets the scene quite reasonably for me and maybe a psychologist colleague other people will be exactly the opposite and they'll say we don't want anything to do with uh, you know any of that psychology rubbish or psychiatry yep. rubbish you know if you just got something you can prescribe yep. now usually if I, I still find that traditional medical teaching to be really helpful in terms of an indication for using something and what might that something be? Well, in a first line sort of situation, second line, and then a third line and beyond, so to speak. So if somebody's sort of really, really adamant about medications, you're still going to be talking to them about CBTI, for example, um, and lifestyle modification in the insomnia um, patients, and with anxiety and depression, um, I'd take a, fair, a similar sort of approach, but where there's, particularly with the depressed patients, if if they're presenting a sort of a melancholic picture, so what we used to call endogenous uh, depression, I think there's pretty good evidence that people do best with a combination of an antidepressant medication and some form of psychological therapy, depending on the nature of the patient, the nature of the problem, of course. So. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable to go with medications early on, yeah. antidepressant medication, that is, early on, if somebody's got a melancholic-looking um, sort of picture yeah. in their depression. And that's, if, if we go to the sort of DSM lexicon, mm-hmm. then that would be major depression with melancholia. Mm-hmm. There's also the other ones, major depression, the general criterion or the general group but that's a bit heterogeneous so I'm less likely to go early with medications with them but I'm still you know likely to. And I've had some of your colleagues really over the years tell me look I just manage the depression the insomnia sorts itself out Mm. or manage the anxiety the insomnia will settle down Mm. you know what's your approach to that? Um, Oh look that's the traditional teaching you know when I started uh, my psychiatry training in the 80s um, that's what we were told uh, that's what we were taught uh, insomnia is just a symptom and um, you know happily the field seems to have progressed but in terms of uh, and I think it holds for all psychological or behavioral therapies if somebody's just too depressed to be able to utilize them to do them then it's really a medication approach for me and I'm obviously in a fortunate position as a psychiatrist medical practitioner to be able to prescribe yep. um, uh, but if if the depression isn't so severe um, then I'm inclined to sort of do both in parallel if you like 
sort of uh, talk about you know how we might do both from the start or depending on again patient preference um, and I guess practical issues um, maybe a sort of a stepped or staged approach to um, to those sort of complementary interventions really right thanks Kurt my, my pleasure okay Kurt's given us his perspective on what he sees in his clinic with people that with insomnia and with anxiety and depression. What do you see here or in your practice within sleep? Yeah, so I see a similar thing to what Kurt describes and sometimes I will see people who probably in their heart of hearts know it's, it is depression or anxiety that's the primary problem but have been a little bit reluctant to go and see a psychiatrist and often see it a little bit more um, easy to come and see a sleep specialist. If only I can fix the sleep, I'll be able to deal with the mood, my mood will get better. I'll be able to deal with the anxiety, and my mm. anxiety will get better. Yeah. And it can be really hard to make that judgment which do we tackle first, mm. the sleep or the anxiety? You know, and, yeah, as, and as you know, we end up tackling both, yeah. you know, usually. Yeah, and both need to be addressed in their own right. And I think the new, the new guidelines or the new DSM 5 show us that, or dictate really, that insomnia coexists with anxiety and depression most of the time. Would you agree? Yeah, well, com- it's certainly a lot, yeah, certainly a lot of the time, commonly. And these days we're told to treat the sleep in its own right without too much emphasis or stress around working out which came first, like yeah. the chicken and egg scenario that we used to be much more fixated on yeah. and that whole idea of primary and secondary insomnia that we don't talk about anymore, especially under the DSM headings at least. And now we know that just to, to treat the insomnia in its own right alongside treating the anxiety and the depression. pick out the insomnia anyway. Yeah. All right, thanks for those really helpful um, insights, Moira. So if people want more information on insomnia, there's some resources on Sleep Hub's webpage and also the Sleep Health Foundation uh, has a webpage with information about sleep and links to both of those will be in the show notes. And if people are feeling that they need uh, more medical help, we really would encourage you to talk to your health professional um, because they will either be able to give you some helpful advice or if they feel it's a bit out of their depth, look at referring you on to a sleep clinic and seeing someone like a psychologist, someone like Moira, or more of a sleep physician, someone like myself. So in this section, we're going to give clinical tips on what we look for in managing people with sleep disorders. So one of the things that I listen for when I'm seeing people with sleep problems is listening to how they talk about sleep. Because if I listen to how people talk about sleep and give them space just to talk about sleep, often emotion comes out. And once people start talking about sleep with emotional language and using terms like frustrated, angry, um, Mm. trying to sleep, that's Mm. the key for Mm. me. Because then I know that there's a change thinking about sleep and we've really got to work on some of that thinking and emotion to help get things better. Yeah, well, you've cut to the chase really and got to the core of our approach within a psychological framework, like the people's language around sleep. And that's something that's really important to even to highlight to them because they don't even know they're doing it half the time. They don't realise the, the, the frustration and the anger and the, the turmoil that's there. Yeah, so if you're working with patients with sleep problems, listen out for the emotion. That's the tip. And if you've got sleep problems yourself, listen to how you talk to your friends and family about sleep. And if there's emotion in the language that you use, the little little light should go on. Yeah, maybe I need to get help about this. Maybe I'm thinking about this a bit too much and it's really starting to impact on me. So this is the part of the podcast which we'll do every month and we're calling it the pick of the month. 
in which we'll highlight a journal article or a product or something like that that's really caught our eye. So what's caught your eye in the last month, David? I really loved the research that was published by Jerome Siegel's group that got a lot of publicity in the mm. general media yeah. about sleep in prehistoric societies. That's fantastic. So interesting. Yeah, and he looked at sleep in a number of different societies in Africa and South America. And really the interesting thing for me, which really challenges a lot of our thinking, was that people in those societies are not sleeping any less mm. than what we're sleeping in sort of modern westernised societies, yet they're not reporting that they feel tired and they're not complaining that they have trouble sleeping. Mm. Yet in Westernised societies, we've got this constant complaint, I'm feeling tired, I'm not sleeping enough, I'm sleep deprived. Um, maybe it's not that we're sleep deprived. Maybe it is that we're tired and the tiredness is for other reasons. Or Absolutely. It's really we, tiring being stressed. Yeah. yeah. Or we're expecting sleep to be different to mm. what it really is. And you know, there's just so much about that paper that I still haven't digested and I think challenges a lot of our you know, beliefs. One of the most important things for me from that paper was that I think it was one of the um, South American tribes of Bolivia, I think, and they didn't have, they don't have a word for insomnia in their language. Do you know, they don't have, that doesn't exist. That yeah. There was no equivalent. Somebody was trying to explain what they were doing. And so that's, I mean, that's so telling. It, is, it, doesn't, it doesn't translate. They don't have insomnia. So, yeah, it's still a work in progress for me trying to get my head around that, that <laughs> paper and what it means for, you know, how we think about sleep and some of the messages around sleep. But, I, yeah, I thought that was fascinating and I think it's going to trigger a lot more um, research and also a lot more um, challenge a lot of our thinking around sleep. Mm. Yeah. What about for you, Moira? What's really caught your eye this month? Well, I've, I've just, just this past month been made aware of, I mean, I actually should have known earlier and I did know earlier, of an app called CBTI Coach. So CBTI, you know, cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia is what we do all the time as psychologists and, and other practitioners do it too. So uh, it's it's a freely available app on, on you know, via the iTunes store, app store, and it's a really, really useful adjunct to treatment. In fact, everyone these days I'm seeing who has a smartphone, I'm encouraging them to download it and work alongside the stuff I'm doing with them, but in between sessions or if they're at home, it's a nice little safety net for them. It's got really good information. It's got particularly good self-monitoring tools, a sleep diary and some um, cognitive work. Like it's a whole little section called Change Your Perspective. I just think it's great. I mean, it's been around for about a year. It's from the, a group in America, um, Rachel Mambert's group. Stanford, I believe, are they from Stanford? Yeah. The group. And it's it's for the veterans. They're, they're working with people with problems in sleep but also tra a lot of trauma-related sleep. But even so, people with without the context of trauma, it's a really useful application yeah. for people to download. Yeah, I really love CBTI Coach as well. Mm. But I think one of the important things for people to remember, it was designed to sit alongside working with a therapist, yeah. not to actually be a standalone treatment. Yeah. I've had a few people go, oh, yeah, that app, no worries, that's all I need, see, yeah, you, see you later. Yeah. And that wasn't how it was designed. And it's, But, yeah, as an adjunct to working yeah. with someone like yourself, I reckon it's a great, yeah, um, I think probably why I'm a little bit slow on the uptake with technology and things like that and why I'm a year down the track, partly is that I'm a little bit threatened. Maybe I was a little bit threatened by things like that because I think, oh, that's what I do. That's what I don't want an app to take the place of what I do. But now I realise that it, it's not taking the place of because the app can't actually necessarily help them with their relationships and their anxiety and their depression, but it just yeah. it's a, it just helps them though with their, with their skills yeah. and with their, their self-monitoring. That's yeah. really, really important. Yeah, great pick, Moira. 
Okay, well, that brings us to the end, really. I think we've, we can sum up now. Thanks for listening to our first podcast. It's, it's been our pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Moira. Always great to work together. And, yeah, hopefully we can really build on this and provide a really useful source of information that people find helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So in the meantime, um, have a good Christmas, um, New Year, and we'll our, our upcoming episode, which will be... Coming in, out in mid-January, yeah. uh, is where we'll reconvene the panel that we talked about earlier in the episode on narcolepsy and initially looking at how narcolepsy is diagnosed and managed. Uh, and so look out for that as episode two in mid-January. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.